Well, in his own words, New York Times political and cultural columnist David Brooks described the year 2013 as a time where he felt unplanted, lonely, humiliated, and scattered. His marriage of 27 years had come to an end, and amidst his own personal crisis, he came to find that he had a lot of friendships, but those friendships didn't run deep. Life put me in the valley, is what Brooks says in the second mountain, and the realities that used to define my life fell away. Of course, it's while working through this season that the writer, uh, that a writer like Brooks does what we might expect a writer would do. He writes. And so Brooks here writes scores of op-ed articles, of course, for the New York Times, but also books, The Road to Character in 2015 and later The Second Mountain in 2019. And it's in this season that Brooks introduces us to what he identifies as two kinds of defining virtues. When you think about your life, how you define your life, two virtues, two kinds, the resume virtues and what he calls the eulogy virtues. According to Brooks, the resume virtues are the skills you bring to the marketplace. The eulogy virtues are the ones that are talked about at your funeral. Whether you were kind, whether you were brave, honest, or faithful. Brooks concludes, and I imagine that many of us would agree, that there is a tendency to impoverish the eulogy virtues in pursuit of resume virtues in our life. That we seek after what might get us deep pockets, all the while missing the opportunity to become capable of deeper love. I think there is something to that, and even more when the adopted virtues are authentic and legit expressions. I think there's something to that. I think it's an important way to live life. But virtues aside, actual eulogies are sometimes, and I might say this charitably here, incomplete. When a eulogy is written, it's oftentimes incomplete. This past week, I was reading a sermon from a Lutheran pastor in the Midwest uh, who recounted an experience officiating a funeral early on in his ministry. He wrote, the guy had quite a reputation. He was ornery. He was impatient, he liked to drink, he would never dare to set foot in the church, and he would talk down to his salt-of-the-earth wife. When it was time for this guy's eulogy, boy was a yarn spun. This guy was the best husband, best parent, the calmest and most patient individual. He was the hardest worker, along with having one of the strongest faiths of anyone in the whole town. And this is a direct quote out of this quote. Yada, 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 blah, blah, blah. You won't be surprised to hear that the minister's sermon was entitled, Bad Eulogies. Well, today's scripture reading paints the picture of God's people once more writing their own bad eulogy. God's people writing a bad eulogy. Our text is found in the final section of Isaiah, what people call Third Isaiah. If you were to divide the book up, uh, this third section uh, would be chapters 56 through 66. And the people here that are being addressed, you might call them post-Babylon or post-exile people. They're now returned back to Jerusalem and the folks who were being the generations following that. And note the characteristics that we see in our own text from verse 2, how these people might consider themselves. They seek God is a characteristic we see. They delight to know God's ways. 
They ask of God, God's righteous judgments. They like to draw near to God. So these are all type of characteristics that sound quite admirable and, and good. I think the faithful in any generation uh, would find such attributes commendable. But it's a half-told. It's an incomplete list. It's a bad eulogy. It's not really what's going on here. The prophet names that. You'll see that the prophet is called in verse 1 to announce their rebellion. And he's called to announce their sin. And includes with the bad eulogy the real situation here in verse 2. Those same bullet points that I just gave you, that same list, the prophet says, as if they were a nation that practiced righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God, in verse 2. That as if, and I've heard that a lot of times on the school ground, as if is a strong early indictment. But note the people's reaction to their expressions of faith, to the way that they were living. Verse 3, why do we fast, but you do not see? They're talking to God at this point. Why humble ourselves, but you do not notice? In their minds, they are indeed being faithful. And they have indeed kept up their side of the covenant bargain. We're on it. We're faithful now. We've been changed. Generations have gone through Babylon, and we've learned from that. We've grown. They've done the stuff. They brought the goods We're doing what God's called us to do. So why isn't God? Why isn't God keeping God's side of things? I think a lot of us ask that question. Why isn't God being faithful? Why isn't God keeping God's side of the bargain? Well, these people here that this text is addressed to seem completely unaware of their duplicitous behavior. Completely unaware. And that's rather frightening. It's rather frightening to a reader today here in the 21st century. It's frightening to this reader in particular, not because being obtuse is unusual. Not because that's unusual, but because it's so common, even for us today. Even for the faithful today. My early elementary days, my family participated in a local church congregation that had a special program for kids that ran concurrent to the worship service, and it was called Super Church. Now, who doesn't want to go to Super Church? Right, if you, if you advertise, you can go to the worship service, or you can go to Super Church, I'm going to Super Church. And so that's what the kids' program was. I imagine it was been some, or it was some extraordinary effort to keep such a large group of children entertained. There was, there was more than 100 kids, easily more than 100 kids, Possibly 200 kids in this super church program. It was a very, very large uh, kids program. And to keep them entertained week in and week out through engaging Bible lessons, through energetic singing and games, and of course, the great equalizer, candy. Lots and lots of candy. Of course, Super Church had a, held a competition each week, and this is the sign of the times when this happened. It was the boys versus the girls. Each week to see which team could donate the most offering to a special collection. And when I say most offering, I don't talk about uh, the numerical value. We're talking about the weight here. They had a giant lever that was set up in the front of the room and had two coffee cans, one on each side of the lever. One said boys, one said girls. Whichever bucket was the heaviest after the collection, they were declared the winner. Of course, the girls usually won. 
I think most weeks the girls won. And the winner got candy. The winner got candy. I resolved to do my part. I brought all my collected change one Sunday. Had it in a little Ziploc baggie in my pocket. I think I must have been playing with it throughout the day. Of course, I should tell you that before Super Church, there was Sunday school. And in Sunday school, there was a collection taken each week, a much more muted collection. It wasn't the fanfare and the craziness. There wasn't a scale or lever with buckets on each end. It wasn't boys versus girls. It was just an envelope that got passed around. And I had this pocket full of money, but I wasn't going to give it because I was taking it to Super Church. I was going to get me some candy. Well, my teacher must have known what I was up to because she simply asked me this. I still remember this. Are you planning to give the money to God? Or are you giving it for candy? Well, I knew the answer. And that was like a hot iron into my heart. I knew the implication as well. My offering wasn't for God. It wasn't for God's mission. It wasn't even to care for other people. It was really just being given for me. I wanted candy. I bring the money, I get the candy. I showed up at Super Church later on without the money. I gave the money in Sunday school that morning. That's how strongly it had pierced my heart as a young child. To a nation that might have believed their singular pious act would net them, quote-unquote, candy, the prophet reminds us that the faithful life is not one and done pious acts. Instead, God's people are to inhabit a way of living that embodies themes found here, but also themes that are found throughout Isaiah and found throughout the prophets as well. And that includes such things as we see in verses 6 and 7. We're to loosen the bonds of injustice. We're not to tighten them, and we're not supposed to create unjust shackles. We're supposed to loosen them. We're supposed to share what we have, whether that be food for the hungry, and I love how we have this food drive going on throughout the Lenten season, I should offer here that I don't love how some of the adults are giving to the kids now because they want to see me dressed as a chili pepper. But we have this collection going on because it's part of our recognition, but that's supposed to be part of all our, our lives all the time. Or whether we're supposed to shelter the homeless, that's also in the list. We're also supposed to provide clothing to the naked. We also see in verses 6 through 7, and this one might be even harder for us to do, We're supposed to reconcile with our family. We're not to hide from our kin, as the text says. And to adopt this kind of posture is to embrace a life that invests in what we said earlier, eulogy virtues. To live these different characteristics in verses 6 through 7 would be a life that invests in those kinds of virtues. But even more than any kind of good word that might be spoken at the end of our lives, this kind of life joins in what Amy Oden calls and observes here God's desire for a whole cloth dismantling of unjust relationships. We're to love God and love our neighbor. That's a significant change in relationship. And here's the thing. The prophet's retort here in this text to the people's claim that what they did matters absolutely affirms what they are saying. What they're doing matters, but not in the way that they're saying it. They had missed it, 
They had just missed it. And even more so, not in the way they're practicing it. Whereas the people concluded that their individual pious acts could move God to action, or should move God to action, all the while engaging in all kinds of unjust acts in the rest of their lives, the prophet makes clear, what you do matters, but don't confuse singular acts like the fast as faithful living. Why? Well, coming back to Amy Oden again, she observes this, the people individually and corporately cannot have a full relationship with God without a just relationship with each other. And we see that here in Isaiah. I think we all know what we do matters. I think we all know that. I don't think that's anything that's revolutionary. No one's going to be shocked by hearing those words. Of course, if you miss that, if you miss that sense, you've completely missed the prophetic voice here and what the prophets are getting at. Faithful living is to be whole life. It's not just to be one part of life. Of course, this past week, I read once more that in the wake of what amounts to be despicable behavior of a ministry's founder, um, which has been brought to light since his death, uh, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, if you follow this story at all, they're going to be laying off over half of their staff, about 60% of their staff, and they're changing the focus of their ministry. The ministry will shift from employing apologists and speakers to supporting evangelism and the prevention of and caring for victims of sexual abuse via grants. They're completely changing the shape, the focus, the scope of that ministry because of the unjust, despicable acts of their founder. Here's what the ministry CEO, Sarah Davis, said in an email to the ministry staff. She wrote, RZIM cannot indeed should not continue to operate as an organization in its present form. Nor do we believe we can merely rename the organization and move forward with, quote, business as usual. That, we are convinced, is not right for numerous reasons. And of course, the heartbreaking thing in all of this, I mean, there's many heartbreaking things here, but one of the great heartbreaks is the CEO, Sarah Davis, is also the disgraced leader's daughter. Who's writing this? You remember Forrest Gump? That's a strange transition, isn't it? Remember Forrest Gump? What, do you, what did he say his mom always said about life? That's right. Life was like a box of chocolates. You got some folks here in the room who remember that. You never know what you're going to get. Isaiah tells us something different. Isaiah tells us something different about life particularly about God's people from beginning to end here in this book, that the life of this people appears far more predictable. Sometimes you know what you're going to get. The sins of chapter 1 that we knew all the way back to the very beginning of this sermon series are repeated in chapter 58. They're repeated in 58. And in every chapter, before and after the exile. It's not quite a box of chocolates, Life is not quite like a box of chocolates. It's more like Pandora's box. A box that the human family continues to open anew in every generation. And Isaiah stands as a stark warning of that. But God is different. God is different. God is different than the people here. And as much as the people wanted God to be such, God is not a vending machine. You can't buy the candy. 
can't purchase it. It's not for sale. Instead, our Creator promises something better that even the people in Isaiah's day demanded, even bigger than better than what they even possibly imagined for themselves. And that is clear throughout the series of a new kind of if-then statements that we see in verses 8 through 14. We demand something. If I give this, I'm going to get something. Isn't there supposed to be some sort of law of reciprocity that I'm supposed to benefit somehow? Don't I pay it forward and I get something in that? But God is not about the something. God is clearly about working on behalf of someone. And that someone this morning is you. That someone is me. That someone is the whole world. In this effort, God is inviting you and me into something more with God. A life in God's life. A partnership in God's mission. Let me say it as clearly as I can say it here. And as clearly as the scripture plays it out. God loves you. We're not to forget that. And that love is not measured by our love. And that love is on full display here in our text this morning. Remember that second week of the series? You may not remember that, but you may remember the text back in Isaiah chapter 6. Where Isaiah, when he was presented with the call to go. And he said, I don't have what it takes. I'm an unclean person. I have impure, unclean lips. And the people that I'm with, they also are unclean. We don't have the stuff. And God provides a remedy there. God comes down, sends the seraphim down with the burning coal and purifies him, cleans his lips. How does Isaiah respond to that? He says, Here am I, when God says, who should I send? Our text has a similar statement, but this time it comes from God. In verse 9, how much more knowing that our here am I, here is met by God's faithful, here I am. Sometimes in life we come to see, and you may have recognized this in your own life, Sometimes those who become acutely aware of their own mortality become more aware of what it means to live. They begin to understand how to live in the moment. We see that with people that might be grieving a sudden loss. There's a sense that, of course, there's a pause. It's a cloud that hovers over you, but there's that moment when you start to see life differently. How much more when someone receives a diagnosis that tells them their life is short? I think most of you know the name Tim Keller. You may know that he is currently living with a cancer diagnosis that is deadly. Though, of course, if you ask Keller, his treatments are, are promising right now. But as he looks at it, he recognizes that what might have been months previously are now just years. So still short but you never quite know what's around the corner. Well, in a recent article, Keller says something that I think David Brooks would agree with, and I think something that we've all learned uh, at some point in life. That at the end of your life, is what Keller says, nobody says, gosh, I wish I spent more time at the office. No one says that. And the reason for this is something Keller has concluded. The thing that makes life meaningful to human beings is love. 
That's what Keller says. Isaiah is a reminder that we are to be a people who embody lives of love. Not just of love, but lives that love. We take the action to demonstrate love. And so consistent with God's love is the giving of God's self. Here in Isaiah 58, we see this in the unfolding of promised reward after reward. But also throughout Scripture, of course, the preeminent giving of God's self-being found in one of the most well-known and beloved passages, if I can use that word, John 3.16. For God so loved the world, or we might say it this way, this is how God loved the world. And how did God love the world? That God gave God's one and only Son. When we come to recognize the enormity of that gift, we come to recognize what I hope the people in Isaiah's day came to recognize, that fasting hardly seems enough. Hardly is enough. God's invitation to you and me today is that we might experience God's great love, a love that has been demonstrated. Remember in, in Romans, uh, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Demonstrated to us in Jesus Christ. And a love that invites us to respond with love of our own to our neighbors. Standing against injustice. Caring for the needs of the human family. Reconciling with our own families. Perhaps from Isaiah today, some of us here need to make a phone call this afternoon to a family member. Perhaps this afternoon, some of us need to take an inventory of how we're spending our money or our time or whatever other resources God has blessed us with. It's no wonder as we think about what it means to love others, to be one who experiences God's love and then to be one who embodies that and fleshes that here and the world reflects that love that an early Christian writer would call this kind of religion in James chapter 1, pure and undefiled before God. In closing here, if we return to those exilic words of David Brooks that we heard at the outset, those words, those categories that I'm sure the people in Isaiah's day felt, I'm sure many of us feel uh, today as we walk amongst this pandemic, unplanted, lonely, humiliated, scattered. Let the story that you write for your life today be a different one than was trying to be written in those bad eulogies. Let it be one that's more legit, a more authentic expression of God's love, a true eulogy. And eulogia here, of course, in Greek means well or good plus word, not just a good word but a good word that bears witness to this good news which God has given to us in Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you on this day for your great love for us. And as challenging as it is to see ourselves here in this season of preparation to see ourselves very much like those people in Isaiah's day, making the same mistake, reducing you to a commodity, to a vending machine, to the means to an end. Lord, help us to have a new focus 
Help us to see that you are the end, but you're also the beginning. That your love is so great that you hold us as beloved children. Lord, help us take confidence and be shaped by that, to be transformed and renewed, that we might live into that place as the loved, serving as agents of love, ambassadors of love and reconciliation. Lord, help us to be those people today and every day through the power of your